If you brought a Bible with you today, um, perhaps you would turn to Hebrews chapter 2. If you're new to New Hope, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. Um, This is week 5, and we're getting to the end of chapter 2. Actually, we're going to finish chapter 2 today. Yay. Glad about that. Um, If you think this has been hard, wait for chapter 3. Man. Um, So if you uh, have your Bible, turn to chapter 2 of Hebrews. Otherwise, uh, you'll see it on the screen. But as well, there's, there's Bibles in the pew rack there in front of you. And you feel free to use one of those. Um, I've had an anchor verse this week that's kind of helped frame my thinking. I shared with you last week, 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Um, this week happened to be 1 John four ten. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How many of you used the word propitiation this last week? thinking not many of us. Um, it's, it's not a common English word, right? So many people would struggle to say, well, I don't even know what that is. Um, think atone. Um, if that's not clear for you, maybe that's a little muddy. Think reconcile or reconciliation. Um, perhaps a more practical way to envision it would be you're, you're in a courtroom perhaps and you've got to pay a, a traffic fine and somebody steps in and slaps the money down on the table for you. The fine is real. It's got to be paid, but somebody else pays it on your behalf. That's kind of the thought behind propitiation. A little bit bigger than that. Well, we understand there's only one who could be the propitiation or the payment for our sin. That's why Jesus would say there's only one way. There's only one truth, one life, and nobody gets to the Father except through me. It's the truth of Scripture. This beautiful truth is presented in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, and, and we're going to start at verse 10. We, we left off last week with being reminded that there's this issue of dominion that mankind has to deal with, that in Genesis 1, we're told that mankind was given dominion over the earth, but we lost that dominion because of the fall. Jesus came and restored dominion, and we get it back again after the second coming of Jesus. So we left off there in verse 9, and we would be asking ourselves at this point, if we were just continuing on, how does that happen? Well, verse 10 kind of starts us out with understanding that. Before we do that, though, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Would you join me in that? Father, we recognize that what we're about to do would not be possible for a man or a woman who doesn't have the insights and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So we would ask that your Holy Spirit would not only be brooding over this auditorium and present because you promised wherever believers are gathered, your Spirit is there in the midst of them, but we would go further than that, Father, and ask that your Spirit would be our teacher and that you would illuminate our minds and allow us to see things that we cannot see on our own. We recognize this is supernatural, Father, and it has to come from you. So we would ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 10 reads this way. For it was fitting that he, meaning God, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I put in brackets the word author. Your Bible might use the word author along with the word founder. They have kind of the same meaning, and I'll explain that in just a moment. This sentence, verse 10, stands as a really subtle witness that the sufferings of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, was not by accident. Jesus did not just stumble into an ambush of the Roman guard and find himself hanging on a cross. 
This was intentional, and verse 10 makes it very, very clear. It was something fitting that God would do, that Jesus would go through this suffering. It was His plan from before the foundation of the world. Well, if that's true, we really need to understand this word fitting and how it's used here. It's the word prepo, and you see it in your notes this morning over on the right-hand side, the notes that are inside your bulletin, but you also see it on the screen. And So when you think of a high-rise building rising up above a city skyline, it towers up. It's on display. So we, we think immediately um, World Trade Center 1 that's just been finished in New York City because the Twin Towers that fell, they raised up a new high-rise building for all the world to say, there it stands. Well, that's the thought behind Prepo. It towers up. It's very conspicuous. Well, what that's telling us is God is putting himself on display. How did he do that? Through sufferings. That's what this verse is saying. It was fitting. It was Prepo that God would do this through the cross, through the sufferings. What did God do through the cross that's consistent with who he is? Well, I've got five things I want to show you on the screen that are very specific to what God did through the cross. First of all, this is consistent with God's holiness because he hates sin. He abhors sin. It's to the degree that he would use the cross to be the demonstration that he was going to put a death to sin. Well, it's consistent with God's power. It's the single greatest display of power ever known in the history of the world, that God would obliterate sin and death. It's consistent with God's love, that he would send the Son to come on our behalf, that's consistent with God's love. And it's consistent with God's grace that Jesus' death would be substitutionary or a propitiation for me, for my wrongdoing. And it's consistent with God's wisdom. So what we see is when this author says it's fitting, it's consistent with God that the cross would be this masterpiece of his wisdom because God solved a dilemma. A dilemma that no human could possibly solve. The work of the cross is totally consistent with who God is. So the author says, it's entirely prepo fitting for God to do this and how he did it. Now, why is that so significant to these Hebrews who are receiving this letter? Well, if you go back to week one, when we started the study of Hebrews, I explained to you that those who are receiving this note, living in 64 to 66 AD, are living at a time that Nero Caesar, Caesar Nero, is in power, and he's known for executing Christians, throwing them into the lion's den, taking them to the Colosseum, they're being beat up by gladiators, they're being hauled away in chains, and he needs to help them understand who Jesus is. Here's the struggle that the Jews had at this time, and today even. They can't understand God becoming man, even less they can't understand why God would die. It's the, the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews, according to Scripture. How could he be Savior if he himself is killed? How can God be the victim of death? That became a stumbling block for them, and especially in the first century. That's why you see throughout the New Testament, every time the disciples begin talking about Jesus, wherever the gospel is preached, they have to explain to the Jews that are listening why Jesus had to become a man why he had to suffer, why he had to die. And through that, he became the author of salvation. That's what the verse says in verse 10. So what does it mean when it says that he's the author of our salvation? Because those in the first century got it. We should understand it. When we think author, we're thinking of somebody writing a book. Well, what does this one actually mean? Well, it's the word archegos, and it literally means a chief leader. 
a pioneer, a prince. Well, there's a very specific way that it was used in the first century. Archegos was used of someone who never stayed behind, but was always out in front giving orders. So if we put it in more modern context, we might think Daniel Boone. Daniel Boone, leaving the eastern seaboard of the United States, decided to become a pioneer and blaze a trail across the Appalachian Mountains for the rest of the American settlers to move westward. Well, in that same sense, Archegos is a pioneer, someone who goes before other people. Peter used it this way in Acts chapter 3. It says this in verse 15. And you killed the Archegos of life, whom God raised from the dead, the prince of life, the one who went before everyone else. So here's the context. If, if we're thinking the way that we should with what we looked at last week, put in context with this week, here's what we're thinking. God, for a little while, became lower than the angels in the form of Jesus. And he did so so that he would become our archegos, our spiritual pioneer to lead us back to God. And what is the result of that? Verse 10 says, to bring many sons to glory. Now that's God's objective, to bring many into his splendor. And it was achieved through the perfect suffering of the cross. Now, verse 10 is a little bit of a stumbling block for people, especially people who are in cults. If they were raised with an incorrect understanding, they would look at this and individuals would say, see right there, Jesus was not perfect. Verse 10 says he was made perfect. He was made perfect through suffering. Now, as believers, you might want to ask yourself, wait, now, I'm a little confused about this. How could Jesus be made perfect if he already is? And how does suffering do that? Well, first of all, understand, there's no thought of him being made perfect in the sense of perfection being changed. Let me be a little more clear about that. There's no thought of perfecting what is already perfect. The author is saying the result of Jesus actually having suffered is different than being ready to suffer. I, I can use it for a much more present illustration for you. Some of you ladies here this week received flowers from your valentine. Some of you may not have, and I'm sorry. Um, I don't mean to call you out, guys. But let's think in terms of a, um, a, a bud in the middle of a, an arrangement of flowers. A bud in itself, let's think rosebud, is perfect. And you would look at it and say, that bud is stunning. It's, it's perfection. But there's a difference between the perfection of a bud and the perfection of a bud that opens up to become a flower, Correct? You see it more perfect in its fullness. Well, that's the same case with Jesus being made perfect in the sense that he's already perfect, but the suffering of the cross was the revealing of his perfection. And so the suffering is unrivaled evidence of his love, just as the opening of the flower is the unrivaled beauty of what the flower, the bud, really is. That's why 1 John 4.10 is really my anchor verse. And it says this again, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the ultimate sacrifice. And in order to display this sacrifice, he's got to make this boundless commitment to us, yet the author says it was fitting. It was fitting that God would do this because it's consistent with his nature and character. So let me ask you a question. If it was such a fitting action 
for God to do this. What's a fitting response for you? How would you respond to this fitting action? I'll ask it this way. Does God seek to bring many sons to glory? Who would agree? The Bible says that. God seeks to bring many sons to glory. So how should we respond to that? Well, Charles Simeon said this all the way back in 1827. Can we by any possibility be advanced to such honor as sonship with God and such happiness as the possession of His glory? And shall we not exert ourselves to the utmost? Can it be right that the Almighty God should take such an interest in us and we remain indifferent about our own state? Is it possible, church, that this one who is this intense illumination in the very form of God, who created all things and upholds all things by the power of his word, whom all the angels in heaven worship, that he would become a man and made just like us in every way, the very God appearing in flesh, and we would just pay no attention to it and not react to it in some way? So that's the argument the author is making in verse 10. Is it possible that God who is fitting in his nature would do this for you? He builds his case brilliantly in verse 11. Go with me there. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Understanding he's he's quoting Isaiah chapter 8, reaching all the way back into the Old Testament. Now he's talking about those who are sanctified having one source. Who are those who are sanctified? The church. It's us. Those who are sanctified have one source. Goes back to this thought of one way, one truth, one life. The truth is, it's really tough for us to think of ourselves as holy this morning, isn't it? I mean, when God says we're sanctified, that's the word hagios, means holy. Those who are holy, do you have struggle with thinking of yourself as holy this morning? Here's why. We live with sin constantly present among us. And at times, sin is so present in our thoughts, we are far from holy. Sin is so present in our actions, we are far from holy. I mean, somebody cuts you off in traffic? Mm. We are so far from holy in our words sometimes. Christians have so few words we can use to really express ourselves, and, and we're so far from being holy that we know it in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words. But in Jesus, according to the Bible, we are perfectly holy. That's profound in the extreme. I need to bear down in this for just a minute because Christians really struggle with this. Understanding that God sees you as holy. You may not act holy. You may not even feel holy this morning. But God says, if you're in Jesus, you are holy. See, just as a child who belongs to a father doesn't always act as his daddy desires, he's still his father's child. doesn't separate him. Why? Why is that true in the case of a believer that even when you screw up, God still sees you as holy? Because of the blood of Jesus, church. Because of the flesh and the blood of Jesus that was sacrificed for you. The one who made the propitiation. Because you've been sanctified through the offering of Jesus. Let me remind you of these truths. Hebrews 10.10 says this. We have been sanctified, meaning made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once 
for all. It means you don't have to keep getting baptized. You don't have to keep taking communion. That's not what that's for. That's not the purpose in that. Those are things to remind you of your walk with Christ. This is the truth of Scripture. You are made holy through Jesus' sacrifice. You became sanctified through what He did. That's why I use 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Just one more moment on this. If you struggle with this, if you struggle with this constant sense of unworthiness in your life because of past sin or present sin or failures that are incalculable in your mind, I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus removed the possibility of positional sinfulness. You stand before God holy in his eyes because of what Jesus did for you, even when you mess up. That's why Scripture says this in Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We're the best at beating ourselves up when we mess up. And Satan is the first one to throw it right out there in front of us and remind us of what failures we are. This may rattle your socks a little bit, but just hear me on this. This truth that you've just heard this morning means that you are as pure as God is pure. Is that hard to hear? It is for me. It's humbling to hear that God sees me through the blood of Jesus. And I'm as pure and righteous as Jesus is righteous. The truth is the practical reality of our life includes sin. But the positional reality of who we are in Jesus, our new nature, is holiness. So verse 11 says we're entitled to be called the brothers of Jesus. Or in your case, ladies, the sisters. We're entitled to that. That's why it says in verse 11, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Is that truth not overwhelming? I mean, how humbling is that? That the Son of God would call us brothers and sisters, and he's not ashamed of it. Consider this. God is delighted to be called the God of you. Wow. God is delighted to be called the God of you. That's what it's telling us here. That's truth overwhelming to the 10th power. And it's not because of who you are. Did you know that? It's because of whose you are. It's not of anything that you did. Not of works of righteousness, lest any one of us could boast. But because of what Jesus did. Now this may be the first time you've ever heard this this morning. Maybe you're new to church or you've never heard it put that way before. And you might be saying, where do I go to get that? Well, the short answer is Jesus. He's the only source. But here's the more complicated answer for 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him, meaning God made Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a complicated way of saying there's only one church. There's only one. Verse 11 says all have one source. So here's a truth you can take to the bank when you leave this weekend. When Satan brings accusations against you, you're such a failure. I mean, look at you. You messed up again. What a screw-up. You're not worthy. You can say, yeah, you're right. But he is, and I stand in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the truth of the Bible. That's the truth of the Word of God. You stand in his righteousness Now, the writer in verse 13 reaches back into the Old Testament again. Go with me there. It says, and again, 
I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through the death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now there's two words that I just want to pull out of that long passage there. It's share and partake. This first word share is koinonia. And it might be familiar to you if you're a fan of the, the movie trilogy called The Lord of the Rings. Um, koinonia is the concept of fellowship. Koinonia, this, this meaning is that we have things in common. Koinonia means that we share something together. Well, according to this passage, what do you and I have in common with each other? We have flesh and blood. We're all alike. We're all the same. It's our common nature. So that word's a little more familiar to us, that we share something. So we share in flesh and blood, but this word partook is very different. This word partook is mateko, and it means to take hold of something that is not naturally yours. So that verse is telling us that Jesus didn't have flesh and blood. He's God, existing in the form of God, very God, who humbled himself, emptied himself, and took on flesh and blood. So this word partook is telling us we're by nature flesh and blood. Jesus was not. He willingly embraced that which did not, nat- that which did not naturally belong to him. Why? Through death, he embraced our nature, the mateko, so that he could die in our place. You know why he did that? He did that because you were doomed to the exact same destiny as that of the fallen angels. The angels who rebelled against God are doomed to eternity in hell. That's their punishment for rebelling against God. Mankind was doomed to the exact same destiny except for Jesus' intervention. And because Satan holds the supreme weapon against man, death, Jesus had to come and destroy it and put an end to death. Satan's power has to be destroyed in order for us to be brought into glory. So he uses this phrase that he might destroy. It is fairly long in the Greek language, but it essentially means this. The word destroy means to dissolve, to to literally obliterate and take it apart and make inoperative. Now, the only way to render Satan inoperative is to take away his weapon. And his biggest weapon is death, eternal death. This is the way John MacArthur said it. I want you to see his quote. Satan knew that God required death for us because of sin. Satan knew that men, if they remained as they were, would die and go out of God's presence into hell forever. Satan wants to hold on to men until they die because once they are dead, the opportunity for salvation is gone. So that would tell us that Satan's weapon is extremely powerful. Would you not agree that there is nothing more powerful than death? Satan's got the most powerful weapon, death. Now, the truth is, if you have a more powerful weapon than your enemy, you render your enemy's weapon kind of inept, right? This week, I was fascinated to watch um, the stories that were unfolding about how the Iranian Navy decided to send two of their Navy ships across the Atlantic Ocean to patrol the waters of the United States because the fifth fleet, the, the Navy's fifth fleet, is patrolling the Persian Gulf. So they decided to send their war muscle um, across the Atlantic Ocean. They haven't made it across the ocean yet, but as I read the story, what I found out is what they sent across was um, a, an old warship that was made in 1978. It's a rust bucket, but they wanted to show that they've got might. Well, 
you know, if you wanted to introduce that thing to the USS Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier nuclear-powered machine, you might discover right away that it's kind of like putting a rowboat up against a Navy destroyer. It's just, I mean, what's the comparison there? Well, in the case of God, God rendered his enemy's weapon inept because our God came to annihilate the enemy, and so he brought out the big gun. And I'm telling you, there was no negotiated peace talk. God's weapon is the king of kings, and he obliterated the enemy. So according to this verse here, Jesus destroyed death, meaning he rendered it completely ineffective, inoperative. How did he do that? According to what we know, he went into death, and he went through death, and he came out the other side, thereby conquering death. How did he do that? Well, he went into death through the cross, and he went through death in the grave, and he came out the other side through the resurrection. That's why you find the disciples every place they went telling the story of the resurrection over and over and over and over again because it's the proof of the destruction of death. The resurrection is proof of the destruction of the enemy. So we go into verse 15 with that thought in mind and it says this, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let me ask you, what terrifies people more than anything? It's the thought of dying, the the thought of death. It's the king of fears, according to some. It's exceedingly terrifying, and it's a horrible fear. Matter of fact, according to verse 15, it says people who are in bondage to it are living in fear because they're subject to slavery. This is what Dr. Gablin had to say. When people are gripped by the ultimate fear, the fear of death, they are in cruel bondage. Well, for the believers in the first century, this is excruciatingly real to them. They're watching their husbands, their wives, their children being hauled off to the Colosseum. They know what it is to live with death. So in the midst of it, we find Paul writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15 saying, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? Why can he say that? Because death holds no fear for the followers of Jesus. We may not know exactly what we're going to go through when we die, and Scripture says it's been appointed unto men to die. We don't know what we're actually going to go through through physical death, but we do know what's on the other side. For those who are subject to the slavery of death, they have no idea of their destiny. We stand secure because we're in the hands of the conqueror of death, the one who defeated it. This is where he begins to wrap up, verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Remember the context. He's writing to the Jews, so he uses Abraham as an example. Verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There's a stunning tension in the midst of this verse. Jesus wanted to feel everything that Mark feels. You can put your name in there. Jesus wanted to feel everything that you feel. Why? According to this passage, so that he could be understanding. See, he came not only to save you. He came not only to give you dominion again, but he came to identify with us. I I can make this very real for you. Timothy, when you read in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, that was a young man who was a pastor of a church in Europe. And Paul wrote those letters to him. The first letter was 1 Timothy. The second letter was 2 Timothy. Timothy was struggling. 
He was having a hard time with the job assignment that he had. And people were giving him grief. And he was despairing. And Paul was encouraging him. That's what 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are. Let me just give you one sentence out of how he encouraged Timothy from 2 Timothy 2.8. It says this, Remember Jesus Christ, Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. Now that may not be as obvious when you look at that, but you notice what Paul's doing? He's reminding Timothy of the humanness of Jesus. Remember Jesus, using His human name, that He encountered death, that He was a descendant of David. See, He's reminding Timothy Jesus was here on earth. Paul, in effect, is saying, remember Jesus in His humanity, Timothy. Remember that whatever you go through, He's already been here before you. He's already gone through this. So that tells you, church, you can literally pray, Lord, you know what you were going through when you were here? I'm going through that right now. Because the Bible says you've encountered every temptation. I'm I'm going through that. And I need you in the midst of this. I'm going through it. And God in response can say, yes, I know. When you have a problem, is it not fantastic to be able to talk to somebody who's that much further ahead of you? Uh, For myself, I have a mentor that I occasionally get to talk to. He's a pastor at a church down in Atlanta. He's 15 years older than me. He's been there that much more times than I have. Young family, parents, young, young parents, you like to talk to somebody who's 10, 15 years beyond you who have raised kids. Why do we like to do that? We want to talk to people who have been there before us. Jesus has been there before us. He's walked in our shoes, and he came to identify with us, experience what we experience. That's why Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this, but in verse 17, if you have your Bible open and, and you write in your Bible, it says, in every respect he was made like unto his brothers. You might want to circle that. In every category. That means Jesus was hungry. He was thirsty. He was fatigued. He slept. He grew. He loved. He was astonished. He was angry. He was indignant. He was sarcastic. He was grieved. He cried. He laughed. Mostly at Peter. The guy just did funny things, didn't he? In every respect, Jesus felt everything I will ever feel. And more. According to the Bible, he sees every weapon that's been formed against us. He's known them all. And he knows the day and the hour that the enemy sets himself against you. And if you need to be reminded this morning, Satan is not idle. He is roaming the earth looking for an enemy to devour. According to Scripture, he pounces like a lion. And he identifies believers as enemy number one. And so we're told according to Scripture, he brings his work against us. Satan is not idle. There is not a saint among us in this room today who has not been tempted. That's the evidence that Satan's working against us. And I don't know if you see yourself as a saint, but that's what God says you are. Well, what happens when Christ followers are tempted? The truth is, Jesus stands ready to help us. Because according to 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can stand. 
So if you're failing in temptation, it's not on God. It's on us who are not going to God and saying, I need your strength because he's able to give us the strength. He felt temptation to a degree we could not possibly know. Consider what he came from and that he came to be one of us. The temptations had to be that much more severe for him. He faced things that you and I will never face, and yet he did it without sin. So this is where we end in verse 18, and it says, as a result of all that, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He himself has suffered. Why did he go through that? Because it's the consistency of God's nature. Our God is not indifferent to us when we hurt. He's not indifferent to us when we are weak or when we are tempted because he's our salvation, our kego, our author, who went there before us, our pioneer. He's our sanctifier. He's our Satan conqueror. And he's your sympathizer, church. That is our Savior. And there's only one, the perfect one. That's why verse 18 is so cool. For me, I circled it in my Bible. He is able. He is able in the midst of the recession. He is able in the midst of your bad finances. He's able in the midst of your physical difficulties. He's able in the midst of your temptation to conquer all of those issues. Every believer is a witness to this. I'll end with a question. Is the Lord Jesus possessor of all power in heaven and earth? Oh, come on, you guys are worse than the nine o'clock crowd. Is Jesus the possessor of the power of heaven and earth? Yes. Okay, so if that's the truth, why should we need to fear anything? In Jesus, we have nothing to fear. So I end with Ephesians 3.20. It says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. ever. You know, the, the author runs out of ink. Forever and ever and ever. I don't know about you, but I can imagine some pretty fantastic things. But this verse promises that God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine. His power is that great. So here's the problem. That verse tells me it's encumbrant upon me to ask. He is able. Would you agree? Where we lack is in the asking. Asking in the midst of the temptation asking in the midst of the need, asking in the midst of the struggle, because as the King James Version says, and I love it, it says he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine. Let's pray with that thought in mind. I'm gonna pray for you that God would drive these truths down deep. Father, we bow our heads in humility that you would allow yourself to be made lower than the angels and that you would take on flesh and blood just because you wanted to be able to identify with us. And that wasn't enough. You didn't just identify. You died for us. 
and you went through the grave and you came out the other side that we might know you. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you that your Holy Spirit was present this morning and that you taught us. Thank you, God, for illumination and understanding that happened here. I'm confident, Father, that there are those who have been in the auditorium this weekend who are not in relationship with you. And they needed to hear this, and perhaps they've heard it for the first time. God, I ask that you would come alongside them and be merciful and explain your grace. Show yourself, Father. Use your wooing nature to draw them to you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who need to be reminded of who they are, that they are seen as holy by you even when we don't feel holy. And that explains why you said we're more than conquerors. And it's not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. Thank you for Jesus. I pray for this congregation, God, as we go out of this building, that you would drive these truths down deep in our heart and that we would walk boldly before a world who desperately needs to hear this truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.